Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So the first reading is Psalm 75. We praise you, God. We praise you, for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. When the earth and all its people quake, It is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob, who says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. And the second reading is Matthew Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are slowly working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We are up to week eight. Uh, If you've been with us uh, since then, we're up to week eight, probably a couple of weeks to go, um, and then we'll we'll be done. Um, I've said a number of times during this series we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount that the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most influential ethical discourse or teaching in Western history. And I'm up for the argument today. I think arguably it is the most significant, most influential discourse teaching that the Western world has ever known. And I'm up for the debate, I'm up for the argument today. I'm up for the five minute sort of debate after church. I'm up for the 30 minute version if you want to come back to my house uh, for lunch uh, over belonging, that's fine. See, there are aspects of Western culture and ethics that can only have come into our tradition, into the Western world, through the Sermon on the Mount. For instance, the way our society values humility over pride, at least in theory, or the hunch that justice is incomplete without mercy. What about that strange conviction that love of enemies is actually a pathway to peace? or the fact that our society is instinctively distrustful of the externalities of religion. 
None of those things can be traced back to Greece or Rome, the other two kind of big influences on the Western world. Certainly didn't come out of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. But it's all featured in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we had time this morning, which we don't have time this morning, or if this was a different kind of talk, we could trace actually how from that first century through the second, third century, through the world, how the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has actually well, been the source of the growth of the Christian church, but also it's changed the hearts and changed even entire empires. And today's passage, Matthew chapter 7, is a classic example of the influence of Jesus' teaching on the Western world. The teaching, Matthew chapter seven, verses one to five, entered into our culture like a thorn in the side to the human tendency towards self-righteousness. Matthew seven, verse one, do not judge or you too will be judged. Or in the old English, judge not, lest ye be judged, yeah? And these words, judge not, lest ye be judged, along with verse five, as Nicole read it, verse five, you know, the plank and the speck or the log and the speck in your eye, have entered into Western culture, into our culture, as what they call idioms. You find these, these, these phrases everywhere in literature, in media, in casual conversation, right? A 30-second Google search on Thursday for me of these phrases Um, I discovered two articles in mainstream media, one in The Australian, one in The Guardian, in just the last few months, actually citing, without attribution to Jesus, by the way, these sayings of Jesus, judge not lest ye be judged. Now, at one level, right, one level, I think it's wonderful to know how influential Jesus has been, don't you think? I love that. I love it when I bump into people who use expressions that are clearly from the lips of Jesus originally and they don't even know it. And I get to say, hey, you know where that came from? And sometimes they're like, oh dear. Other times they're like, oh, that's really interesting. But there's a downside, isn't it, to this kind of cultural reality. Because we can become so used to these phrases, we can lose the vitality with which they were shared when they first were uttered. See, the thing about a proverb, when it becomes embraced by a culture, it can easily become extracted from its original setting and we can give it meaning that the original speaker never actually intended. And I reckon, judge not, lest ye be judged, is a good example of this mistake. So today, this is how we're going to roll today, right? First up, I just want to help us, I want to help clear some misunderstanding around the judge not lest ye be judged verse. And then secondly, I want to look at these verses and just like let us see the enduring power of Jesus' words for us today. So firstly, clearing up a misunderstanding. Uh, If you're a note taker, there's kind of your first heading, clearing up a misunderstanding. I wish, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard the, those words, you know, judge not, thrown at the Christian just after the believer in Jesus had tries, has tried to gently explain their moral viewpoint about something. You ever had that happen? You know, you've just tried to gently explain your moral viewpoint and they go, judge not, judge not. You ever had that? I love a dollar for every time that's happened. 
I'd also like a dollar for every time I've heard Christians scold themselves. Oh, oh, I know I shouldn't judge. I know I shouldn't judge. When all they've done is offered, again, a really gentle critique of something in our world. But I don't think Jesus intended us to think of judge in that superficial way. The word judge that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 7 uh, and in the gospel is the Greek word krino. Can you say that with me? Crino, there you go, drop this one in. Um, And like our English word, right, the word crino, judge, has a broad range of meaning, right? So at one end of the spectrum, when we come to crino, it can simply mean to discern something, and you move along the spectrum, and then it can mean to critique something, and then down the other end of the spectrum, uh, crino can mean to condemn, right? So you've got discern, critique, condemn, or for you guys, Discern, critique, condemn, right? There you go. I'm speaking to you, not to me. Anyway, um, at the neutral end of the spectrum, right, so discern, it, it can just mean kind of discerning, say, a distance or judging a distance. So I judge that the distance between me and Liam at the back of the church is 23.789 metres, right? I'm just judging a distance. Or it can mean... Um, I'm making a judgment about a car that I want to buy or I'm judging a competition. Does that make sense? Just discerning that. But at the other end of the spectrum, it does frequently mean in Scripture to condemn, to overthrow, to count someone's sins against them. Um, So here are a couple of examples um, at the other end of the spectrum, that condemning end of the spectrum. So John chapter 3, verse 17 For God did not send his son, did not send Jesus into the world to crino the world, or rightly translated condemn, but to save the world through him. Actually, crino is the word used for the day of judgment in the Bible. Um, So Revelation chapter 20, I think it's coming up on the screen, Revelation chapter 20, and verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were crinoed according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was crinoed according to what they had done. This is a reference to the judgment of God and the condemnation that follows sin. To judge in Matthew 7 can't mean to discern right and wrong or even to critique wrong. The whole Sermon on the Mount, right? If you've been here for the whole eight weeks, the whole Sermon on the Mount, think about the logic of it. Jesus asks us to reject one way of life, which Jesus calls evil, and to embrace another way of life, which he calls righteousness. So there's something very basic about the whole Sermon on the Mount that says judge cannot mean simply to discern right from wrong or critique wrong. Later in this very chapter, if you glance down at verse 15, Jesus explicitly asks us to make kind of critical judgment. So Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets, Jesus says. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The fruit of their lives requires critical discernment. Or it's there in verse 6, right, which we had read to us. 
Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Pearls before swine, right, is of course another saying of Jesus that's become something of an idiom in our culture, yeah? Should probably pause here, right, and explain this little pearls before swine idea. Um, the, the sacred pearl before pigs here is presumably the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and the wider gospel. Um, some people are so resistant to Jesus, so resistant to Christ's ways that he suggests sometimes we withdraw unless it goes completely pear-shaped and backfires. Now please don't understand what I'm saying, right? Because remember, Jesus was known as the friend of sinners, wasn't he? We did a whole sermon on that late last year. Jesus whined and dined with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. That's who Jesus is. But he also says when he sends out his disciples to preach his pearl, his message, he gave them this caveat just a few chapters later, Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, the pearl, the message... Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. It's pretty strong, isn't it? A piece of prophetic theatre, absolutely no doubt, but clearly involves a critique or some discernment. I'm reflecting on the pearls before swine saying here in Matthew in um, a commentary written by Don Carson, um, a fine theologian from Canada. He writes this, over the years, I've gradually come to a place where I refuse to attempt to explain Christianity and introduce Christ to the person who just wants to mock and argue and ridicule. It accomplishes nothing good. And there are so many other opportunities where time and energy can be invested more profitably. Personally, I think this pearls before swine teaching has never been more relevant in our sort of intractable online ridicule of Christianity that we see today. Anyway, the broader point, my first point, is that Jesus did, didn't say we weren't meant to judge in that sense of discerning or critiquing what is wrong, discerning right from wrong or critiquing what is wrong. Apart from anything, right, that would make a mockery of verse 5 where Jesus says that eventually he wants us to see clearly in order to remove the speck from our brother or sister's eye. That surely involves a proper form of moral discernment or moral critique that doesn't flip into judgmentalism in the, the negative sense. So we are to discern right from wrong. We are to critique what is wrong. Uh, let me give you um, some live examples of what this might look like. Um, and some of these are bound to annoy somebody in the room this morning. Anyway, um, here's one. I am, I am critical of the Australian government's continued cuts to promised overseas foreign aid. Um, I really am. I can understand the government sort of pausing our commitments to fund um, and help overseas nations and things like that. But to cut what's been promised means that World Vision, Tier Australia, MICA, Opportunity International will suffer and have to cut their own programs because they were counting on the promise. That to me just seems like unfair and not right. I'm also critical of the federal government's 
what seems to me mistreatment of asylum seekers. But I'm not condemning Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton or anyone else, I'm really not. I'm making a critical judgment about what I think is right and wrong that seems to me to flow from the wisdom of Jesus, yeah? There is judgment and there is judgment. Perhaps on the other side of the ledger, I also think that sex before marriage is foolish and wrong. And what's more, I think as a theological and logical principle that by definition, marriage can only be between a man and a woman. But I can form that judgment, right, and even critique it without actually condemning those who think differently to me. I think I'm just repeating what Jesus taught. It's his wisdom. We mustn't let ourselves be bullied, right, or bully ourselves into being sheepish about the wisdom of Christ through misunderstanding what he meant by judge not lest ye be judged. In the current climate, right, people are going to disagree and they are going to protest. They're going to say, don't judge, don't judge, even after your gentlest attempt to share your Christian worldview on something. Sometimes we've just got to cop it and not fret, right, thinking we've defied the Lord when they throw back his words at us, judge not lest ye be judged, or don't judge. And other times, right, I think it's worth pointing out the irony of the protest, oh, you're so judgmental, aware of the judgment that someone's making of you. Now, you've got to pick the conversation to do that in, by the way, so just don't do that all the time. Um, that's the misunderstanding, yeah? That's the misunderstanding. Let's turn to the intended meaning because I think the intended meaning is powerful. I think it's cutting. I think it's kind of revolutionary. Um, in this context, to judge must mean to condemn, yeah? To move beyond moral discernment or moral critique and begin to, if I can, I can put it this way, to hold people's sins against them in thought, in word, or in deed. So we might render Jesus' words in verses one to two something like this. Do not hold people's sins against them or you too will have your sins held against you by the Lord. For in the same way you hold the sins of others against them, you will have your sins held against you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, I can be critical of our Prime Minister's policies about asylum seekers and policies about the desperately poor in our world, but I mustn't badmouth him. I mustn't stop praying for him and honouring him. That would be to condemn and to judge. Again, it's fine to think that our world is in a fog about sex and about marriage, but I must still love and respect the man who visits prostitutes or the woman who views porn or the gay couple that live down the road or the polyamorous bisexual woman. To do anything else would be to judge and to condemn, would be to defy the teachings of Jesus. And you know, this ought to be, and I know it's not all the time, this, this ought to be just instinctive for the Christian. Because there is one sinner I find really easy to love and respect. Yeah? 
And his name is Simon Jackson. Jacko. I find it really easy to love and respect myself. And you know what? Sometimes Jacko is a real jerk, a complete idiot, and an absolute failure. But I really rate him. He's a really good guy. See, I live, if you lived in my body, right, I live with a certain knowledge of my sin. But I still love myself. I still look after myself. I judge, but I don't judge, right, if you get what I mean. Being aware of my own sin and God's grace toward me, regardless, frees me not to judge others. And this is the meaning of those famous words that follow in Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 to 5. Have a look with me. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you know what I love? I love how Jesus has so obviously um, brought into his teaching an experience from his own work and trade, yeah? What, what did Jesus do when he was growing up and working? He was a, a carpenter. He was a carpenter, right? And one of the things that I'm pretty sure, I'm not a carpenter, but I'm pretty sure carpenters know pretty well, is when you're working with timber, you're going to get specks of sawdust in your eye from time to time. I don't know, I wonder how many times growing up, Jesus, you know, learning his trade, you know, had to kind of go up to, you know, help his dad or go to his dad and say, hey, Joseph, I've got one of those specks in my eye. Can you help me out? Or on the flip side, you know, Joseph walks up to Jesus. Imagine that, the son of God. Jesus, can you help me with a speck in my eye? Must have dawned on Jesus, right? One day, what a great picture of the moral life this is. Stick closely with this, right? The one thing you can't do when you've got a speck in your eye, is see clearly, right? Someone's got to help you, especially in a culture, right, where there are no mirrors. We need each other, humbly to help each other get back on the right track. That's not judging, is it? That's loving. The other truth, no doubt from Jesus' own experience, is that when you've got a speck in your eye, right, it feels like a plank, yeah? It's a plank, it feels like a plank. To the onlooker, it just looks like a tiny speck in the other person's eyes, but to me, it's everything. Blocks my whole field of vision. It's a plank. So I think the whole speck and plank or speck and log thing is a metaphor of perspective. The sin in your own life should seem larger than the sin in anyone else's life because it's your sin, your plank. The sin of others should like, look like a speck. Now, this is not at all to minimise the sin in the world. No way. It's just that Christians should be so aware of their own sin and so aware of God's mercy that we just don't condemn other people. We find it easy to love and respect ourselves knowing the deep and depth of our own sin we should find it relatively easy to do the same with others, especially if we're a follower of Jesus. If I were to put this plank speck image in sort of like a little pithy punchline, I would say 
We ought to be at least as conscious of our own sin as we are of the sin of others. At least as conscious of our own sin as we are the sin of others. And you know what? This kind of brings us all the way right back to the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What were the very first words that Jesus uttered in his Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The opening line of this world-changing, radical, ethical teaching of Jesus is that the kingdom of God belongs not to those who think they're right with God and have it all together, but it is for all of those people who come to the point where they realise that their inner self before their maker, their spirit, is poor, bankrupt and out of credit. And what's the second line of the Sermon on the Mount? Beatitude number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And if you remember when we unpacked that a couple of months ago, what Jesus calls for here from his followers is a humble melancholy that first sees the sin and brokenness in my life and then and only then mourns, laments the sin of the world around us. It's the basic posture, right, of the Christian living in this world. Actually, this has been put really beautifully by a guy named Francis Spufford, who looks like this. There you go. Looks like a nice guy, Francis. Um, Francis, he works at the University of Cambridge over in the UK. Um, He was um, one of those kind of classic British elite atheists, yeah, who then world came crashing down when he met the Lord Jesus and now he's embraced boring old Anglicanism. Uh, there you go. Um, he's lost, he actually in the whole process, he's lost heaps of friends, but he's still really good at writing, yeah? Um, and uh, he wrote this book some time ago, uh, I won't read the whole title, but Unapologetic, I don't know if you've read this, Unapologetic. Um, and he captures this thought that I'm trying to explain really well. Um, the quote's on the screen, I'll read it out. He says, so of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason there aren't any good people, not that can be surely securely designated as such. It can't be about circling the wagons of virtue out in the suburbs and keeping the unruly inner city at bay. This, I realise, goes flat contrary to the present predominant image of it as something existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves, far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. Again, of course, there are Christians like that. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty, not guilty of the same things or in the same way or the same degree, but enough for us to recognise each other. Oh, by the way, Francis teaches writing at Cambridge, which you can probably see. Or in my words, we ought to be at least as conscious of our own sin as we are the sin of others. Let me draw a few threads together 
Our paragraph today that we've just looked at, this little section of Matthew, um, kind of functions as the beginning of the conclusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? It doesn't add another kind of ethical item. Jesus is just drawing things to a close by, by drawing our attention to the correct posture of those who've heard all the ethical teachings of Jesus. You know, Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, um, has reached amazing ethical heights, right? In Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's called his people, his disciples, to peacemaking, truth-telling, sexual purity, love, non-violence, simplicity in prayer, charity to the poor, shunning of materialism, all those things we've looked at. And now, the logic of this passage It's like a temptation, if you've come to know this and embrace this ethic, there's a temptation to look down on other people who don't live according to this ethic. You find yourself in the position thinking, I'm in the possession of the best ethics, and you start to look down on people who don't live by it. And Jesus is saying, no way, no way. According to Jesus, if we really know his ethic, we will not judge will not condemn. I don't see this as an additional ethical command, right? I see this as the proper stance of anyone who gets Jesus. When we know the mind of the maker, we will not look down on other people. We will also be as conscious of our own sin as we are the sin of anyone else. So there are just two things I want to leave us with today. Two sides of the same coin. Pretty much already said them, but I'll just make them hopefully a bit clear. First thing I want to say, brothers and sisters, please don't let the foggy thinking of our world push you around. Don't let the foggy thinking of our world push you around. As soon as you open your mouth, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you engage in some kind of ethical discourse with someone, that differs from the reigning sort of narrative or paradigm out in our world, well, it could get interesting. You know, people will say, oh, you shouldn't judge. But here's the thing, you've just got to get used to the fact that some people really like some parts of Jesus' teaching and those same people don't like other parts of Jesus' teaching and then you'll find other people who like those parts of Jesus' teaching but don't like other parts of Jesus' teaching, right? This was true in the first century It's true in the 21st century. If you take yourself back to first century Palestine or Israel, where Jesus was, when Jesus was around, like people wholly agreed with Jesus on stuff like caring for the poor and marriage and sex and prayer. But those same people kind of disliked some of Jesus' injunctions about, you know, love for enemies or judging of other people. Those things sort of creeped them out, freaked them out. We now just happen to live in a society that's been so influenced by Jesus' teaching that we happen to love today Jesus' teaching about love and his teaching about judge not. We love that. But the same people who like that about Jesus' teaching don't like the stuff that he said about sex or marriage or prayer or perhaps most of all don't like what he says about money. Here's one of the most important spiritual truths you need to know. So what? So what? 
Our culture's disagreements with Jesus are no more significant than his culture's disagreements with Jesus. And Christians throughout the ages have generally just shrugged their shoulders when people object to stuff and they just get on with loving people and believing the gospel and proclaiming the truth that they know to be God's eternal wisdom. And not just acknowledging the passing historical blips that we're in. They don't judge, but they're happy to judge. They don't condemn, they don't hold people's sins against them, but they discern and are happy to critique with gentleness and respect. Yeah? So don't, don't let the foggy thinking of our world push you around. The second and probably more important thing to ponder is that we mustn't let our self-righteous hearts look down on those who don't agree with Jesus' teaching. Once you become, come into possession of this Sermon on the Mount and see glimpses glimpse of it sort of activated and working their way out in your life, the human instinct, it's just sin by the way, is to look down on others who don't measure up. That is the clearest sign of all, I think, that you've not really understood the teachings of Jesus. Because there's one person in your life who you already simultaneously recognise as a sinner and love. And that's the idea here. You know that phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Have you heard that phrase? Love the sinner, hate the sin? Gets a really bad rap these days. You hear people ridicule it, turn it into like an odious kind of cliche. I want to say, actually, it's genius. It's genius. And the fact that our culture has lost the moral imagination to work out how it's possible to profoundly critique a moral issue and at the same time profoundly care for and respect those people who we disagree with, the fact that our culture can't get its head around that is to me a massive loss from our culture. It's disappearing as we displace the gospel. People who know the gospel should know that it's entirely possible to critique and love. After all, that's the gospel, isn't it, basically? Yeah? God's got a problem with us and he came in love for us. Yeah? Let me end by simply saying, once you know the teaching of Christ and the gospel more broadly, we will not judge, not in the negative sense. When we know that we're forgiven our sins through no merit of our own, but only through Jesus' death and his resurrection, well, there goes another basis for our judging. It's not just the doctrine of sin that removes our judgment of others, it's also the doctrine of grace. Because if it was just the doctrine of sin that removed our judgment, right, uh, we could begin to think, well, I've made some moral improvements in my life. I've moved up three rungs on the holiness-righteousness ladder and now I'm looking down on you. You've got a bit of work to do, you know? But the Christian doesn't do that, yeah? They know it's all of grace. All of grace. When you know your sin... And when you know the grace of God, you will not judge. It's implausible. It's impermissible. 
Of course, we want to stand up for Christ's wisdom. We want to pray for our nation. We will do that. We want to commend Jesus to our family and our friends and our colleagues. But we will not judge. We will not condemn. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would write your words on our hearts. Protect us from the sin of self-righteousness and pride. Father, help us to think clearly about ourselves and the world. But Lord, help us to not hold people's sins against them. By your spirit, Father, help us to live as your people in this world. A people who are strong, who are wise, and with the help of your spirit, able to stand firmly on Jesus' words. But as we seek to be strong and wise and seek to stand firm, Lord, help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be compassionate, kind, excellent listeners and gentle. Father, we really need your Spirit's work in our lives in this area. So please pour out your Spirit on us as a church community. Pour out your Spirit on us as individuals that we might indeed live by the gospel that we believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.